Well, good morning. Before we get started, I'd like to read a couple of things to you. First of all, I want to apologize to uh, Roger and Mimi. We just got this not long ago. But it says, your kind and thoughtful expression of sympathy is deeply appreciated and gratefully acknowledged. Dear church family, the plant you sent for Marcy's funeral was beautiful. She would have loved it. Thank you for your prayers and your kindness. We love you all, Roger, Mimi, and family. Brother, you're most welcome. I also have a letter here by Mr. Franklin Graham himself. Yes, he is signed by Franklin Graham. See what he has to say. Dear Reverend Neely, that tracks me kind of odd. Who's he talking to? Dear Reverend Neely, I wanted to write and express my gratitude for the generous gift sent to Samaritan's Purse from Forestburg Baptist Church for Operation Christmas Child Project. We deeply appreciate your partnership. We give God the glory that we're able to collect over 11 million gift-filled shoeboxes this season and have already begun distributing them in places like Mexico, Moldova, Romania, and Albania. Each box is an opportunity to share his love and the hope of the gospel with a child, and beyond that, it touches entire families and communities. Please pray with us for children in over 110 countries who are receiving shoe boxes this year. May God richly bless you sincerely, Franklin Glam. So thank you, church, for what you did last year in Operation Christmas Child. Did you hear? Over 110 million shoe boxes sent out. Behold, I am making all things new. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. I'm reminded of a story about a Sunday school teacher who was teaching six-year-olds, and he wanted to teach them how to get to heaven. But in order to do that, he wanted to ask some questions first to see what they already knew about the subject. He asked, if I sold my house and my car, I had a big garage sale, and gave all my money to the church, would that get me into heaven? No, the children answered. Now, he was getting somewhat encouraged. So then he asked, if I cleaned the church every day, mowed the churchyard, kept everything neat and tidy, would that get me, heaven? Get me into heaven? And of course, the children answered, no! Now he's starting to have a little smile on his face. Well then, he said, if I was kind to animals and gave candy to all the children and loved my wife and kids, would that get me into heaven? Again, the children all shouted, no! Well, now he has a big grin on his face. At that time, a little boy in the back row stood up and said, you have to be dead! Now, I'm not sure that's what the teacher was expecting, but it does make you think, what's beyond the grave? How can I be certain that heaven is awaiting me? Because when we are certain of our destiny, the trip is a lot more fun. Let me repeat that. When we are certain of our destiny, the trip is a lot more fun. It reminds me of Jesus' word in John chapter 10, verse 27 and following. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, 
and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. How many believers do we have in the house? Say amen. You are safe and secure in Jesus' hand. And over Jesus' hand is the Father's hand. And no one can snatch you out of their hands. This world that is corrupted by sin will one day perish. Because in the end, God will make all things new. Not remodeled, not repainted, not rehatched, not made from something left over, but totally and absolutely new. I am, God says, making all things new. So with that, let's turn our attention to the text. And I pray, I'm going to warn you now, I might start jumping up and down because this text brings you great comfort and great assurance, and I pray that it will do the same for you. Look at verse 1. John tells us, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. Peter wrote about this event in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. Listen to what Peter says. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a war, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening for the coming of the day of God, because of the, which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And he talks about a new heaven. What he's talking about is the heaven and the earth, this intergalactic space, if you will. It's the purging of everything wicked and destructive from the entire creation that gives rise to this new heaven and this new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, it may seem strange to us that he adds in the phrase, there is no longer any sea. But for people back in the first century, the sea was a place of the great abyss. The sea was a place where monstrous uh, creatures lived. It was a place of destruction and chaos. And for John... The agency, as he looked out from the island of Patmos, the sea blocked his view at his home church in Ephesus. And he longed to see him. That sea represented everything destructive and chaotic. And John tells him, there will be no longer any sea. That means anything that's destructive or wicked is now completely and utterly gone. Some say... I'm not going to go there. But I will tell you, the Psalms do describe the sea as a dangerous place in Psalms chapter 30, verse 1, and Psalm 69, 1 through 3. 
So any of the things that cause us pain here on earth are gone. Look in verse 2. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Listen to this description. Made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, if you remember back in chapter 19, we read the account of the wedding supper of the Lamb and his bride. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Who is the bride, by the way, in that text? Say it with some more conviction. There you go. The church. Now some say that's the same thing you see happening here. However, I would argue, say no, it's talking about this new Jerusalem. Synonymous with the church and how he's made it ready. In fact, that Greek, Greek verb, I'm going to try to pronounce this right. Hitoimazo, translated prepare and make ready. That should remind you of a verse back in John chapter 14, verse 2. Of a promise Jesus makes to his disciples and, by, and to us. Do you remember what that says? In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And now we see this place that Jesus has prepared coming down out of heaven from God. Looking like a bride prepared for her husband. That Greek word translated adorned or beautifully dressed is cosmeo. It's where we get our word cosmos or the English word cosmetic from. It captures the awe of the moment of this new Jerusalem coming down as when a bride was about to walk the aisle. Now, I have been privileged to officiate some weddings and to see the look on the groom's face when the doors fly open and his bride is there beautifully dressed. Some of them even begin to cry. And by default, I start to cry. So beautiful. And it's also that great anticipation about what's going to happen. They're going to be joined together. The two shall become one. The same thing's going on here. The new Jerusalem's coming down, and we're going to be now joined with our Lord and our Maker forever and ever and ever. I know about you, but I'm excited about that moment. Can you imagine looking up and seeing that new Jerusalem coming down? Verse 3, it says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. That word tabernacle can also be translated a tent. Now, it may seem strange to us. Why is he talking about a tent and not something colossal like a, like a temple? Well, the tabernacle did serve Solomon as a model when he built the temple. And you remember back in the tabernacle days after they constructed it and they dedicated it to God, what happened? His spirit went in, his Shania glory, and blessed in the Holy of Holies, and that signified that God was with his people. But here, instead of a temple, he dwelled in a tent. Why did he dwell in that tent? Because as he directed and moved the people, he would move with them. See, these other gods that these people would come up with and worship, they're in a temple, a structure. They are only gods over that geographical area. But we serve a God that's omnipresent. He's everywhere. and He's guiding his people. That's why it's a tabernacle. He moves with his people. Is God with us here now? 
That's not a rhetorical question. He is here now. Through his spirit, he's always with us. Now, look back at verse 3. It says, they shall be his people. Listen to this. And God himself will be among them. Now, if you go back to Genesis, you will find out prior to their fall, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. What was that like? Can you imagine just walking along in the cool of the day with the Lord? How awesome that would be. The Spirit of God came among the the men in the Old Testament, the prophets. And the Spirit of God, since you are a believer, if you're a believer, it resides in you. The doctrine of God being omnipresent is well known throughout Scripture. It's a source of great comfort and assurances of the providence of God. John chapter 4 verse 24 tells us God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. But here clearly, there is a unique way in which God now dwells among his people. Because in our heart of hearts, we long to see him, don't we? Can you imagine seeing Jesus the way he truly is? Not coming on a, on a donkey, but on a white horse as victor and triumpher, as Lord of Lord, King of Kings. Seeing him in all his glory and wonder. And as Dow pointed out in Sunday school, for us to stand there holy and blemish simply because of Jesus' sacrifice, his blood. There is a unique way in which God is now going to dwell among his people. And look at verse 4. It breaks it down even more. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, tears can come for many different reasons, not just sadness. You can be overcome with the emotion of seeing someone you haven't seen in a long time. Excitement, you, you begin to cry. But here... It seems to be that every tear of sadness is wiped away from their eyes. The cold cruelty of the hideous triumph of death over humanity. Because even us as believers, it hurts when someone leaves. It hurts hard. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will grieve, not as those who have no hope. So we are going to grieve, it hurts. But here, clearly, God's going to take that all away. Look what he says. There will be no longer any death, in verse 4. There will be no longer any mourning, or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. This mourning, this crying, this pain, this heartbrokenness will no longer be here. No more people walking around with hearts broken and lives shattered. That will all be abolished. Neither will there be any further agonizing pain. Some of you know what the body goes through sometimes. and You have this immense pain that never goes away. Will that all be gone as well? Now, Most of us, when death comes, will have that agonizing pain right before death. But I want you... To realize it's not just death, but this is anything that causes pain will be gone. Can you imagine such a place that he 
will wipe away every tear from your eye. All things associated with weeping, pain, agony, and death will all pass away. Wow. What does that look like? I have no idea. But I look so forward to seeing it one day. Look in verse 5. Is, it says, He who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. In the end, it's only God who can create. Now, his angels and us as humans can make a contribution to the work of God, but only he can create. Only God can bring about life from nothing or resurrect a life from the dead. God is now declaring exactly what he's going to do. He is going to make everything new. Does that get you excited today? This place will be gone one day. All this you see, gone. And that new heaven, that new heaven is going to come down. And we're going to live for them forever and ever. And there will be no more pain, no more suffering. Sin will be totally eradicated. What does that look like? I have no idea. No more backbiting. No more gossip. If Janice talking to the Lord, I won't get jealous. I mean, I'll be gone. I mean, even my best relationship here on earth with my lovely wife, Tammy, it is still tainted by sin. And yes, we argue. If you tell me don't argue, you're lying. Okay, we have intense debates. Is that better? But that will all be gone. Our relationship to each other will be perfect. And our relationship to God, we... No more hindered. See, we, we see in a mirror dimly right now. We see glimpses, but we haven't caught the full thing as of yet. And on that day, it will be revealed. Your faith will become your sight. Jesus tells John in verse 5, Right, for these words are faithful, are trustworthy and true. By virtue of their origin, coming from God, they are both faithful and true. God is not just giving a true word for John to write. He is giving him words that could be depended upon in every single way. This is God's truth. It's solid as a rock. You can stand on it. You can hold on to it when the storms of life come crashing down. That's the thing I hold on to and I stand upon. It's the truth of God's word. How can I go through some of the stuff God's called me to go through with other families because I know the truth of God. As it says back in Thessalonians, yes, I will grieve and I will shed my tears, but I still have my hope. Nothing can shake that. Then he said to me in verse 6, it is done. Or literally, they are finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end. Of course, the alpha being the first letter of the Greek alphabet and omega being the last letter of the Greek alphabet. So this is somewhat cultural, but an all-encompassing way of stressing before there was anything else, God was there. He is the beginning of all things. Not only is he the beginning of all things, he's also the end of all things. And by the way, that Greek word translated end is telos. 
it carries more than just an ending of a sequence of events. It carries a sense of completion or purpose. Therefore, God is also the purpose of everything that transpires. There is an explanation for all our sorrows and tribulations, an answer that will be completely satisfying. God has a purpose. Your life has meaning. It has purpose. I don't care what they tell you out there in college and biology class. You're not an accident of some cosmo goo somewhere. God created you. You have meaning. You have purpose. And everything that we go through, God uses that. To mold us and to shape us. As Romans 8.28 tells us, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to His purpose. Not all things are good, but God uses all things for good. Reminds me of Joseph. You go back in Genesis, I believe, chapter 52. Joseph is there talking to his brothers there in Egypt. A great famine has disrupted the land. And, and Joseph tells his brothers, you meant all this stuff for evil. God meant it for good. Now go back to Joseph's life for a second. His father gives him a coat of many, many colors that makes his brothers all jealous of him. I'm paraphrasing. They throw him in the pit. They sell him off to some slaves. He goes off to Egypt. He works his way up. And then Potiphar's wife wants to have some fun with him. Let's put it that way. And he refuses. She accuses him. Because when he runs away from her, she grabs a part of his tunic. Say, look what he did. He's thrown into prison. Works his way from there and has a favor of God. He works his way up in the jail. Now he's at the right hand of Pharaoh. Go back and read that story. Joseph goes through some horrendous things. And yet he makes the statement to his brothers, you meant that all for evil. God meant it for good. That mean God let him go through all those things? Yeah. Yeah, he did. But he worked them all together for good. Can you imagine the humility and how much shame his brothers must have felt when they realized that was their little brother that had sold in slavery years before, and now they're going to him asking him for food? His little brother is in a place of position of authority. Wow. I look back in verse 6 of our text. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Did you catch that? Spiritual thirst can never be quenched or satisfied by anything we desire or chase after on this earth. It can't. It only becomes through God, through his word. But God being with us, he provides the fountain of the water of life. Without payment, not because the water of life doesn't have any value. It's the only thing that can quench our spiritual thirst. But the cost has already been paid. It's been paid by the Lamb. Jesus paid that price. Verse 7. He overcomes the victor, will inherit these things and blessings, and I will be his God and he will be my son. <laughs> Let's get this right. I'm going to be with God. There's going to be no more sin, no more death, no more more, no more crime. But yet, I also maintain this relationship with him. He still maintains that relationship as being a father. Now, God has one ontological son. That's Jesus. But as believers in Christ, we are his children. 
sons, little s, and daughters of God. And the Bible teaches us, as such, we are joint heirs with Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 16 and 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if we indeed suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. We are joint heirs with Christ. What did Christ inherit? Anybody? Everything. As a believer, as a disciple or of Christ, you are now a joint heir with him. Amazing grace. I, t- I can't believe it. Because I don't deserve none of it. But yet in his love and his mercy and his compassion, he offered it to me freely as a gift. And the reason I responded to that gift in the first place is because the Spirit convicted me of my sin. So my faith in Christ is a gift. There is nothing I have done. It's all because of him. Dearly beloved, if this won't make you want to scream up and shout and feel assured and comfort, I don't know what will. All the pain, I mean, go home and turn on the TV, all the pain and suffering in this world. That will all be abolished because God will make all things new. And that's all good news. But in conclusion, I'm going to use verse 8. Because there's a warning in verse 8. Look what verse 8 says. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone. This is not an all-comprehensive list, but it does provide a general overlook at the natures of those who deny the Lord. Now, when you look at that list, cowardly kind of may throw you off, saying, well, that doesn't seem as serious as the rest of them. But that Greek word translated cowardly is deos. And when it's used to describe things, when it's used in classical Greek, it's translated miserable or wretched. And that provides us some insight about how the word is being used here. So here's the contract that's being made. When Christ is revealed, some will be able to speak because they are right with God and are aware of the righteousness that has been bestowed upon them. And that will be us as believers. But in contrast, others will say, as we look back in Revelation chapter 6, verse 16 and 17, they will say to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? See, the distinction between these two groups is found in their response to the revelation of God's law and his provision on grace. Some hear the message of the gospel. They hear the law of God. And then they hear the gospel, his grace, and they respond by repenting and confessing. And now the righteousness of Christ has now been bestowed upon them. 
but some will hear the message and they will continue on doing what they're doing regardless in spite of God's law and in spite of his grace. So my question to you, what group are you in? Because all this stuff about wiping away tears from our eyes, that's all promises made to those who are believers in Christ. It's not a promise to everybody. Because you just heard a text say, but for the cowardly and more persons, there are places in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I'm not asking you if you're a member of this church. I'm not asking you how much money you've given. I'm not asking you how much you attend either church. I'm asking you, do you know Christ? And if you do, that's wonderful. He's called us here for a reason and for a purpose. Going back to Matthew 28, we are to make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything Jesus has taught us and baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's our purpose. That's our job. And if you haven't figured this out by now, go out there and see. People are longing for purpose and for meaning in this life. Suicide rates are skyrocketing among our own people, our, uh, young people. Go take a look. Drug use, alcohol abuse, all that stuff is going sky high. Why? Because people are looking to escape the pain. And what the world promises, they cannot deliver. There's only one person that has the answer, and his name is Jesus Christ. If you want peace in your life, if you want restoration and healing, you come to him. Don't worry about getting everything right before you come. Come to him as you are. He'll start with you right where you're at. He'll meet you where you are. And let me tell you, the work he'll do on you, you'll never be the same. And then one day we'll be all in heaven singing his praises. And I know some of us don't like repeating words over and over in some of these songs, but if you look in the book of Revelation, what are they constantly doing? Falling down on their faces, crying out, Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Holy, holy is He. Amen. That's what waits us beyond the grave, dearly beloved. That's what waits us. Do you know you have a heaven waiting for you? Do you have that assurance? If you ever have a doubt, now is the time. Why not take just a few moments to make sure you're in right standing with God and spend all eternity going, why didn't I? Why didn't I? Why didn't I? And lastly, I will say this. Because I know some of us get a little nervous in front of people. I was one of those people, believe it or not. I was shy among people. That's another story. But the people here will not laugh at you will not make fun of you, will come alongside of you, will pray with you. At times we may laugh with you, and yes, we will weep with you. It's all about walking together as brothers and sisters in Christ as we follow our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. I thank you, Father, for your promises. I thank you, Lord, for your amazing gift. It astounds me 
I'm in utter awe and wonder of your goodness that you poured out upon us. No wonder John Newton would write, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It's far above anything we can comprehend or even imagine. So, Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit will continue to move and continue to speak to us. Father, reach in, speak to our hearts, mold them and shape them, speak to our minds. Father, we desperately need you. May you grant us the, the courage to step out and step up. Father, may many make decisions for you this morning. May your will be done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me?